Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty at stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. This episode is a conversation with Dr. Dana Sajid. Dana is an associate professor of clinical emergency medicine and director of the Clinical Ultrasound Fellowship at LA County USC Hospital. He trained at the University of California, San Diego did his residency at the SUNY Downstate Kings County program in Brooklyn, New York, and then did an emergency ultrasound fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's been faculty at Harvard Medical School, the University of Washington, and New York University, and now at USC. On a personal level, Dana has been absolutely instrumental in my own development as an emergency doctor, both in terms of teaching me the skills and techniques to actually perform emergency medicine, but also as a mentor of how to stay cool, calm, and focused no matter what the situation. We have a great conversation this episode and cover a variety of topics, like how to shift from algorithmic to more free-form thinking as you go from a learner to a more advanced practitioner of a skill. We talk a lot about the links between emergency medicine and jazz music, and about the importance of self-reflection and meditation for continuous self-improvement. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. All that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. Dana, super happy to be here with you talking about this. It's it's awesome to get a chance to talk with somebody that trained me that had such a, a big impact in my own development as an ER doctor, and I'm just just really happy to be here with you talking about this today. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to join you. Um, you you mentioned that I trained you, but I, I don't know how much impact I had on your training. <laughs> you were you were pretty good, uh, no matter what anyone did, oh, I, no I, matter I, what other external influences there were on you. You were pretty great on your own. Well, much appreciated. Much appreciated. Um, as we were setting up uh, today and sort of talking about how we wanted to get started and what we wanted to talk about, you mentioned that there was a time uh, that was particularly meaningful for you at the beginning of your residency training that really got you first started thinking about about the underlying philosophy of emergency care, for lack of a better word. I don't know if you want to start and take us through that. Sure. Uh, when you first discussed this podcast with me and the concepts you wanted to discuss, I couldn't help but reminisce about my start in emergency medicine as a resident. And I think it's something that a lot of people go through when they start internship. It's a giant leap from being a medical student to being an MD and being an intern in a busy emergency department. But I felt it was really exaggerated in my case because I made a big leap from the type of ER I trained in as a med student to the type of ER I trained in as a resident, where I went from a very controlled, academic, calm department Mm -hmm. to a municipal hospital in Brooklyn that was very busy Mm -hmm. and very chaotic in comparison. And I think at the very beginning, from day one of my internship, I realized that compared to a lot of my residency classmates, I wasn't as prepared as they were going into it. So I had to really think about how I was going to approach my residency and my patient care and everything I was going to do just from day one, minute one. It was very obvious to me. Hmm. And, and when you say that you didn't feel as prepared as your teammates, you, you, I'm sure you don't mean medically, right? You, like your medical knowledge was, was roughly the same. Everybody's is to some extent coming out of medical school. Absolutely. Yeah. Book learning was never a problem for me. I'm not saying I'm very intelligent by any means, but I'm I'm adequately intelligent. And I read on my own. That was never an issue. It was actually the hands-on training that I didn't have as a medical student that I looked around and noticed that everyone else knew how to do certain things. Procedures, something as simple as putting an IV in, I had no idea how to do that. And so I had to learn on the fly very quickly at the beginning. 
Yeah. And this is maybe a good point to, to do a little bit of context, which is that, you know, medical education in the U.S. has a wide variety of applications, even within the field of emergency medicine. And you get a wide variety. Everybody understands sort of the basic book learning concepts. But when you come out of medical school, when you start seeing patients, there's a wide variability in terms of uh, how much, or I guess I'd say there's a wide variability in the level of emergency situations in which you personally have been put and in which you personally were forced to operate. Absolutely. And again, some of this is universal. Very few fourth-year medical students have a great deal of responsibility in patient care on their own. Most of the time, you're working under very close supervision. The moment you become an MD, you get a little more autonomy. And again, it varies from place to place. I trained at a place where I had a great deal of autonomy from the very beginning. Yeah, and, and that makes sense, right? Intuitively, we understand that, that you have to, and I, um, in episode uh, three, Dr. Andrea Austin talked about this idea a lot, which is when you're building a team, you're going to make sure that everybody is excellent in their own lane before you really start throwing them into pressure, right? This idea of learn your skill, learn it well, and then go deploy it under, under pressure. And in some sense, that's the model of medical education, which is that you learn the theory, and then you go out and start applying it into reality. But that, that first moment when... When rubber starts really hitting the road, uh, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of friction there, a lot of sparks. And what what was that like for you? Was there was there a patient? Was there a thing in the morning like that first that first day? What did that feel like? Um, day one, shift one during our orientation month, where they have you work just to learn the ropes a little bit without much pressure. I already felt behind the gun. Hmm. I looked around and I noticed a fellow intern who was starting at the same time knew how to get things done that I had no idea how to do. Um, he knew how to draw blood, place an IV. He knew how to order certain tests. And I just felt like I lacked that and I was behind. And I really felt pressure on myself. I, I, you know, we learned to deal with stress over time. That's part of your residency training as well. But I, I think compared to my classmates, I felt a lot of pressure. The first patient I saw was someone who had altered mental status. And I had no approach in my mind hmm. to that. And I had no training. And again, that's part of residency training and what you learn. But I felt like I didn't have any baseline framework to go on at that point. Huh. That must have felt pretty overwhelming and like you're sort of tossed into the deep end. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now you're never totally unsupervised and so I, I approached an attending and I discussed the case with him and he gave me feedback and that was actually really important for the rest of my career that first feedback session I got with an attending hmm. someone I looked up to for the rest of my residency as a matter of fact and was my mentor throughout residency but he basically sat me down and taught me a systematic approach to patient care that I still kind of continue to go through in my mind to this day Wow, what, what is that? In, well, enlighten us. <laughs> it's not anything miraculous or magical. It's really just looking and, and thinking, what is the worst case scenario in this situation with this patient? And then going back to your very basic things. Um, I think you discussed this in a previous episode too, but we all kind of revert to ABC and then placing a patient on a monitor and getting IV access and Again, going through a differential in your mind of what's the worst case scenario here. Mm -hmm. You get better at that as time goes on and you become more rapid in that evaluation. But I didn't really come into residency with that mental framework at all. Interesting. So, so there's an idea in there that's implicit in that, which is that when you're faced with uncertain circumstances and, um, and chaos in some sense in there, then developing algorithms to structure your approach is really important. I think so. Yeah. I, I always kind of fall back on routine. And that's not to say we don't improvise, because we do. But improvisation comes after you've kind of learned that initial algorithmic approach, I feel. Hmm. So... You know, put us in this scenario. Think about us in your shoes there. So you're you're brand new. It feels chaotic. You know, you you have the smart move where you go to a more senior doctor, and the senior doctor says, "Yes, algorithms. Great. Yeah. <laughs> here's an algorithm. Here's here's I'm going to tell you an algorithm. How do you then take that, and how do you apply that? I took that to the following cases I saw after that conversation, and used that mental approach. Um, in every patient evaluation, I came across the rest of that day where I basically 
took, again, what's the worst case scenario in my mind? What's the worst part of the differential here? What do I need to do to work that up? How likely is that? It's part of, again, what we do pretty much unconsciously at this point in emergency medicine after you've been in practice. But I had to really learn to think, actively think about all those steps in my mind with each case. And I did as the day went on. Hmm. And the, so that's really interesting, right? Because you weren't, it's not like you were a clean slate at that point in your life, right? You'd, you'd grown up. Correct. You grew up uh, around here in California, right? Correct. Right. And you lived here most of your life. And I had lived here my entire life up until that point. Ah, interesting. So there's also a big sense of shift of external circumstances. Absolutely. And so you, you've gone through some training. It must not have been the first time that you'd considered algorithmic thinking or that somebody had taught you, hey, there are systemic approaches that, that support your thinking. Of course. Um, that's something you learn in college in certain t- topics. That's something you learn in med school in different rotations as well. I think this was the first time I was really asked with independently applying those algorithms to patient care, hmm. and which is probably why I felt so uncomfortable with it at first. You know, I was so disorganized at first. I didn't have the mental organization that I had applied in real practice prior to that. Right, and I think that's a pretty universal feeling. I think all of us remember the first time we made a single medical decision on our own two feet, right? I remember the exact medication I first prescribed and feeling completely overwhelmed. Like, guess I'm just going to write this prescription now. Absolutely. That idea of, you know, when do you first start learning the process of how to think, and then when do you first start applying that in real life to a real situation are, are in some sense different, although linked questions. So as you look back on your training, and this could be anywhere from growing up with your family to school to medical school, um, was there anything that really stands out to you in terms of how you started learning how to think about processing and think about thinking? I can tell you over a period of time where uh, a teacher in high school was really into telling us to think critically about things and actively uh, engaged us to kind of buck the system and actively engaged us to argue with him to kind of think more critically. That helped. That was a starting point. And then um, over the course of college, I don't think it was actually something that I learned in any class that was taught, but it came from other life experiences, work experience in a lab and doing research with a mentor, um, and of course taking some courses here and there that, that really challenged you to think differently about things. That's over time how these things kind of came together. Do you have any recommendations for people that are maybe at that point in their life? Like they're in, they're starting to think about thinking, they're starting to think about school. You know, was there any sort of uh, book or or thing that you'd advise them to read to sort of blow their mind a little bit? Um, this is more pertinent to emergency medicine, I feel, than, than general fields. That said, uh, I think a terrific book to read, or two books I'm going to mention in particular. Uh, one is Heat by Bill Buford, and the other is Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. Uh, I've often heard people make the, you know, the, draw the similarities between working in a busy restaurant or kitchen and working in an emergency department, and there are certainly some similarities. I think those two books really go through what it's like to deal with pressure in an instant, and it's not just in the world of, you know, gourmet chefs or celebrity restaurants. It's really a great metaphor for how to deal with pressure and stress and multitasking in in any field. And that's something we do on a daily basis in the ED. And so for me, reading those two books, I could really make a mental link to what we do on a daily basis at work. Okay, so let's go forward in time, or, or rather back in time to that to that younger version of Dana, right? That's in residency, that had this big culture shock as you're moving and you realize, hey, I really need to be able to think differently and to apply this thought differently. And you're, you're sitting there with your attending and somebody gives you this idea of an algorithm and you go, okay, I'm going to start applying this today. What did that feel like? That, and I imagine it must have felt like trying on somebody else's clothes for the first time. They're like, you know their clothes, but they don't really fit you in the right way. And, and you can take that in any direction you want. I mean, maybe talk to us about what it felt like in the immediate couple of days after that as you were trying to make that your own, or maybe over the next couple months as you were really starting to come onto your own, um, come on to be able to stand on your own two feet as a doctor. I think the, the best way to approach what you're telling me is talk about 
quite literally a patient I saw later in the day with a similar complaint who I saw and presented to a different attending but used that prior attending's approach to discussing. Um, I went back, saw another patient, and I went through exactly the way I was told to go through that case, and I recognized myself I was making a more organized presentation and my own thought process was more organized. So you mentioned it as wearing someone else's clothes and it absolutely was. I mean, I was virtually speaking someone else's words as I was presenting this. At the same time, I was kind of learning to mold that into my own way of thinking. And I was, I was going to, I recognized that I needed to make that my own way and my own approach because I liked it. I liked the way that I was being systematic about this and I liked the way that it made me feel comfortable doing that. I could recognize that change from a beginning to an end of a shift. And again, I was by no means a stellar intern at that point, but I at least knew that I could be more comfortable doing this and I could apply this to other patients and I can do this. And obviously I was going to mold things into my own fashion and again, use my own words down the line. But I knew that I now could have an approach to things, and that made me feel more comfortable. Hmm. Let's let's press on that a little bit because yeah. you used the word comfortable in that sentence a couple of times, and you know the idea that that maybe you had the knowledge, but you weren't comfortable using it. Or what is it about having a system that made you feel more um, more comfortable? And, and maybe a synonym for that is capable. Or, or or what else does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. Capability is part of it. Like I said. I noticed that other people were definitely more capable than I was in the emergency department. Again, my peers were probably a head and shoulders above me from day one. Um, but having that kind of approach to a patient made me feel like I could now deal with a variety of things. It wasn't just one case, for example, but now I had an approach that I could use to patient care going forward. And um, part of that comes with practice, right? Part of that comes with seeing more cases and applying that mental algorithm. But I really felt like I now could deal with things, whereas before, if you were to approach me on day one with a case, I would have no way to approach that. I would just be lost in my own thinking there. And my mind would probably wander in a million different directions. This was a way to hone in and focus my thinking in an organized fashion. Hmm. So there's the idea in there somewhere, which is that algorithms allow you not only to focus on a particular thing, but decrease the mental cost of making certain moves, right? So I talk about this a lot with the folks that I train, and I don't know, maybe as I say this, maybe I got this from you, I'm not totally sure, but you know, the idea of the sugar hypothesis of emergency medicine, right? The idea that every decision you make costs energy. Every time you, you fire your neurons, you burn sugar and you have a set amount of energy at any one period in time. Every time you make a decision, you burn energy. And the idea of, are you using your energy appropriately where it's most needed? Can you make sure that you have enough energy to make the correct decisions, the decisions that your patients and your teams really need you to make the most? Algorithms, in some sense, allow you to approach that from a much more structured and um, a much more focused way. And it sounds like that's sort of what you're saying, that at the beginning you were just flailing a little bit and somebody is now teaching you, hey, try swimming with this kind of a stroke. Absolutely, yeah. If you're not organized in your approach, I feel like, again, my mind tends to wander. We, we all work in emergency medicine because we probably have a varied interest and we like the constant motion of it. But something has to hone in that energy. Something has to hone in that brain power. And for me, I found that using that kind of algorithmic approach is what let me kind of hone in and 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 focus on the task at hand. As we think more and more about how to use algorithms in emergency care and how important that is, I think it's worth making really explicit what type of algorithm we're talking about. What's in it? What does this mean? Because it's one thing to say, use a systematic approach. Great. But it's another thing to really be able to express and explain how do we do that and what does that look like? So if you can, can you send us back in time and again, think about that first algorithm you were given. What did that look like? What were the parts of it? When I sat down to think about it with the attending who presented his way of thinking to me, I recognized that I was really disorganized and I was very all over the place in my approach to patient care. And really the algorithm was be more focused and be more pertinent to the patient's immediate needs. What in the emergency department is the worst case scenario? That's what we think about typically. 
in your differential diagnosis. What are the worst things and how do you address that? And it kind of, that pertains to any number of complaints that come through that door. And then I was really taught kind of how to address the resuscitation of, of any patient who walks through that door in that systematic fashion that we do. Airway breathing circulation, it, it's like a mantra for us, right? Absolutely. We're, we're practically chanting it on a daily basis when we work with residents or when we're just working clinically on our own. Um, but it's not really something that sank in into my head. It's things you often do passively, but like thinking about it in a stepwise fashion made it more tangible. I thought about that initially with a single case and then started applying that to a variety of cases and a variety of complaints. It didn't matter if the next patient I saw had chest pain or musculoskeletal injury or head injury or again, altered mental status. My approach was going to be the same from then on at least in my mind. And then as you get more comfortable with that, you improvise going forward. Right, and so that, there's, a really, there's a very cool implicit thing in that, which is the idea of like, you're learning an algorithm, you're trying a new approach to applying a skill under pressure, and the answer is try it and keep trying it and go out there and you know, chop wood, carry water, right? Like Absolutely. go out and apply it over and over again and start seeing what happens. And um, we were talking, uh, I think again, this was maybe episode three or four, Five, where we're talking about the idea of taking an algorithm or a system and throwing it under pressure over and over again and starting to see where it breaks and then going backward and learning from that. There's a great book that I really enjoy, Peak, which is all about the science of expertise and learning. And that's one of the things they really recommend in building a training program is to take a system and apply it until there's so much pressure that it breaks and then look at where it breaks and use that to go back and learn. And so that idea is somewhat implicit of what you're saying, which is that, okay, I had this new algorithm I wanted to try and I went out and I used it. I used it every day and I used it every case to see what would happen to it. Absolutely. And I mean, I found myself actively thinking in that fashion when I walked into a patient's room. And at the beginning, I tried to be much more strict and formal about it. I would write down notes, and before I would write a note down as I was talking to a patient, I would physically write on a piece of paper, ABC, and then IVO2 monitor, and finger stick, and repeat blood pressure. And again, I would, all these things that we don't even think about really, that are just automatic for us now, I found myself really trying to be organized and approaching every patient with that same organization level at the beginning. Hmm. That's that's really awesome. That idea of, of building a scaffold for your algorithm to be deployed from so that you make it automatic over time. Absolutely. And again, over time, I got away from writing these things down. It just became second nature. And at a certain point, it just it's something that you don't even think about any longer, but you're doing always. When you walk in the room to see a patient, I'm sure you recognize how they're breathing. You look at the monitor to see their vital signs. You look at their mouth and their airway just to see if the worst case happens. Am I gonna be able to intubate this person easily? These are just things that are automatic in the back of my head now and that I kind of had to learn at the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I actually had a case last night, I was working with one of our, our residents where the patient was having a, a gastrointestinal bleed and they were losing a lot of blood. And, you know, the resident was presenting a very well thought out sort of plan about what to do. But my first question was, okay, if we had to intubate this person, is there suction set up in the room? You know, and the lesson is to think about the worst case scenario, right. because you go through a case like that and you don't have suction set up and you never forget that again, right? You want to think about the worst case and make sure you're ready for it. There's a stoic concept that really matches this, and, and it's I'm going to butcher the pronunciation because I don't really speak Latin, but the idea is something along the lines of uh, premeditatum malorum, which roughly translates, as far as I can tell, into think about bad things, right? The idea of think about that worst thing that's going to happen and then train yourself to get ready for it. You bring up a great point, Dan, and that's remembering to have the suction because you learned probably from a time when there wasn't suction set up and you went to intubate someone. Uh, that's that's exactly like experiential learning is really important like that not repeating your mistakes and even teaching others the mistakes you made i learned so much by listening to senior residents or attendings tell me yeah make sure your x y and z is set up appropriately or do this procedure in this fashion so you don't make this error that i made that became part of my mental thinking and my, my thought process in a lot of a lot of cases going forward too hmm. and so you're talking about 
you know, starting to move from the idea of a total beginner learner where you're handed an algorithm and you're starting to make it more and more your own. What time frame did that occur over? I mean, over the next, like, was it over the first year? Was it, did it, was it over the next couple of days? Like, when did it start feeling like it was a little bit more natural? It certainly wasn't a couple of days. It takes a while to adjust to any department, any practice. Um, I think it took over the course of a year before it started to feel natural for me to be in the emergency department and it just came with the practice of doing it over and over again. Part of what I didn't mention is the actual knowledge content of emergency medicine residency that you learn. Sure, I had an algorithm and an approach to patients and I would think about worst case scenarios and monitors and airways, but I just didn't know enough to be comfortable and that came with practice over time and of course there's independent reading and things that one has to do but really you learn the most by doing this and so uh, over the course of a year it just be went from strict algorithms just that approach to being comfortable and kind of feeling good in my own skin in the ED. Hmm. Awesome. And, and bring us forward in time, maybe maybe to now. So let's say we're, we're today and you're out seeing a patient by yourself and it's a complicated patient and you know, you're galvanizing your team around you. What does that look like? Um, well, right now we work in an environment where we have trainees and there's obviously nurses and technicians and, and we, the attendings, who are supervising all of this happening. Um, I'm a huge music fan and I in addition to likening emergency medicine or the emergency department to uh, working in a busy kitchen or restaurant, I actually really like musical metaphors a lot. And I, I think probably the thing that works the best for emergency medicine, in my mind, is jazz music. I think working in the ER is like jazz, and this comes to team leadership as well. Uh, the beauty of jazz is that it's so improvisational. It's people riffing off of one another. Sax player goes into it, drummer goes into it, piano goes into it, and they're just playing off of each other. But behind all of that improvisation and playing off of each other is mastery of those instruments. And there is some form to it in the background of it all. So this is how I approach, like every shift I go into, I'm not listening to Miles Davis on my way into the shift, but I'm feeling Miles Davis in my mind and in my heart as I go in there. And when you talk about the team approach and how I, how I deal with a case that's very complicated, it's jazz. It's the ability to improvise. It's making sure your resident is on point in one place, but knowing that, hey, sometimes interventions don't go the way you plan. And if something changes in the immediate sense, knowing kind of how to improvise off of that and having the tools and the equipment, maybe it's mental tools and equipment, maybe it's actual tools and equipment like ultrasound, for example, which I'm a big proponent of, but, uh, but having the tools and the equipment to deal with that improvisation on the fly. Um, you know, again, being prepared for the unexpected is second nature in our jobs. And like, a, and these cases where things go awry sometimes, you just have to have a backup plan. We approach airways very systematically and we say, okay, we're going to use direct laryngoscopy to intubate someone. And if that doesn't work, we have a backup plan. And if that doesn't work, we have another backup plan. And the end point of that is we make an incision in the neck and put a tube through the neck to, to be able to ventilate someone and have them breathe. We have that very systematic in our brains most of the time. We kind of have to have that same approach to everything in patient care. What do we do for IV access if it doesn't work? What's the next step? What do we do if the blood pressure doesn't respond appropriately to fluids? What's the next step? We have all of these tools and we have all of this stuff in our background and in our minds, it's just a matter of making sure everyone is doing that and able to kind of riff on what's going on with the patient at each point. And sometimes it's not a single patient, sometimes we work in a busy trauma center where we get multiple trauma victims at once or multiple sick medical patients at once, and so you have to be able to kind of improvise on the fly. The background for all of this improvisation, however, is, is that mental framework. I'm always thinking back to what Dr. Shahriar Zatabchi taught me my day one of my intern year, which is, what's the worst thing that can happen here? Think about that, address that somehow, and make sure you're addressing their breathing and the circulation, and make sure you have access, and make sure the patient's on. All these like systematic things that is like ingrained in a second nature, and it's, it's all in the background there, and we're just addressing those things going on. 
Dana, that is that is awesome. There is some serious deep magic in what you just said right there. <laughs> the link between emergency medicine and jazz, right? And that idea of master your instrument so that you can learn to improvise. That is an incredibly deep thing to say. I think as people who work in a training program, that's what we should try and impart on our trainees. And yes, sometimes it's specific knowledge of what's the best medication to use in the setting of CHF with high blood pressure. That's fine. That's a knowledge-based thing someone can read. But in practice, it's difficult when you're training people. You want to give them enough autonomy so that they can apply their own mental framework to things at the same time. You want to make sure everything's being done appropriately. That way, over time, over three or four years, whatever your training program may be, you kind of have the ability to improvise. I want everyone to be Miles Davis coming out of residency. Right on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's also interesting in terms of our own responsibility to ourself, right? Because, of course, I'm not a musician, right? But I'm a martial artist. Nor am I, by the way. (laughs) there's, There's a lot of parallels in there, obviously, to what I spend a lot of time thinking about, which is, other than emergency care, jujitsu, right? Where you master a skill, you learn a skill, and then you learn to improvise, you learn to apply it. And that idea, you know, mastering your own instrument, that never stops. That's a lifelong thing, a lifelong relationship with that instrument in terms of continuing to build mastery. Just like it is improvising and playing and and being in a group where you work together on that kind of thing. So I'll turn that question back around to you a little bit, which is that how are you working on mastering your instrument right now? I think one of the things I'm trying to improve as I go through my career is be better about self-reflection. We get feedback from people who work with us. We get feedback from our trainees. Whether we like it or not, we get feedback from nurses sometimes, like unsolicited feedback, and sometimes it's just an attitude or the way people approach you. That's feedback. If they're really cautious in talking to you, maybe you're not being open enough. I haven't really done a great job in my career, I think, of being self-reflective and figuring out what to do when things go wrong. So to improve my own instrument playing, I I think the really important part is to really reflect on what you do well and what you don't do well. And one thing we have to do in emergency medicine is be able to let things slide and let things go. And I think I do that fairly well. I don't get hung up on cases. At the same time, it's important to not be so uh, dissociated or so detached that you're not learning from things. And it's not necessarily a case that goes wrong. Um, things can go perfectly right, but you can do better the next time. And I've tried over the last few years to be better about self-reflection as far as, again, my individual care of patients goes, but also working in a team. Um, One thing that I've seen others do, specifically your guest on a previous podcast, Andrea Austin, is take the team aside after a tough case or even just something very complicated and break down what went well and what didn't go well. And uh, I've tried to actually emulate that uh, recently in my practice um, as a method of learning to improve myself too. Uh, When people make mistakes around you, again, even when things don't get messed up, but uh, still function appropriately, you can always improve off of that, whether, again, it's mistakes or just smooth work. Um, You can always be better. And uh, I'm trying to be actively better as I go along by reflecting on this this interaction didn't go the way I intended, or uh, my supervision uh, wasn't close enough and maybe I should improve that in the future. The resident is, is telling me either explicitly or by just a roundabout way that I wasn't there to supervise enough. Um, I want to address these things in my practice um, by trying to pick up on these like feedback cues that I'm getting from other people. Hmm. And so what is that? So that idea of trying to get better at your own practice, even when things don't go wrong. What does that look like at like the logistics level? I mean, do you keep a notebook where you jot down notes after a shift? Do you think to yourself as you're driving home in the car? Um, I started, for instance, recently keeping a a journal after each jiu-jitsu class of writing down what went well and what didn't go well in that class and hoping I will be able to go back and mine that for patterns and for growth. I don't uh, write things down uh, as much, but um, 
Dan, I actually started meditating at the after every shift now, whether it's when I come home or just sit in my office at work for a little while and just do a few minutes of quiet self-reflection. Um, I take a little time and I think back to almost every patient I saw on a shift. It's in, Some days it's impossible to think of every patient and remember every patient, but I try and go through the cases in my head and figure out what went well and what didn't go well. And most of the time it's a fairly quick practice. Again, some cases are very routine. Things go well and there's not much to think about in that. There are some cases where things go poorly and you want to redo it in your mind. And I try and think of those in between cases where uh, it was okay, what can I do to make things more efficient next time? Or how can I communicate more effectively with the resident that I'd like something to be done next time? Or how can I interact with with a consultant next time in, in a more, I don't want to say forceful fashion, but in a way that emphasizes what we'd like to happen for the patient. Um, these are the type of interactions I think about. It's not necessarily medical knowledge, not to say that I know everything. I certainly don't. Again, the reading happens on its own. It's more for interactions and it's more about how we supervise a team and how we, uh, how we approach the patients and how we approach our consultants and how we approach our colleagues. Mm. Danny, that's, that's so cool. What an awesome thing to start doing like that. And what, what, is that is, what does that look like? Is there a structure behind that? Do you, you know, get me down a brass tacks. Do you sit quietly in a room with the light off? Do you sit with a particular sound? How did you start coming up with this method of doing things? And then my second part of that question is gonna be, what do you do at the end of that? Do you end with, and this is one thing I want to do differently next time. What's your system for holding yourself accountable for that idea at the next shift? So um, the actual how does it look is uh, I usually turn some music on in the background, and, but turn it to is a pretty low music? volume. It's not always jazz music. It's uh, just a whatever's on the playlist coming up, but really low volume, just something background it's almost white noise for me i don't necessarily turn off the lights um, in the office i'll just sit and kind of take a few moments in my chair i i like to drink iced tea so i have a little iced tea at work and then uh, there you have it folks about, iced tea secret yeah, secret to being a secret, emergency exactly. doctor uh, and then i just uh, sit and think about the cases Sometimes it's actually active. I go through the computer and I go through our EMR and I look at the notes that were sent to me and, and recall, I don't want to say reminisce because it's not like some fond, like distant memory, but I recall the cases we had that day or that shift or maybe a previous shift and I say, oh, this is what happened. Um, when it's not at work, uh, I come home and uh, again, music at a pretty low level, and I'll just sit and uh, maybe enjoy a cup of coffee or something else, uh, just something else going on in the background while I just recall what happened during that shift and things that I can, again, I try and be active about things that I can do better and make mental notes about what, what did I do today that I can do better next time. The second part, the what happens and how do I hold myself accountable for that, uh, I've actually try and email our residents if there's something that I think could have gone better and say, hey, uh, in this case, we did this, but I thought about this for a while afterwards and perhaps next time we can approach it like this. Mm. Um, that's probably the most tangible way I do. Uh, otherwise, it's just mental notes to myself about what to do. Uh, I tend to talk to myself a lot at home when I'm alone. My wife is here or something, I, you know, I'm talking with her, but... Uh, when I'm on my own, I, I try and recall how things went and kind of talk them out loud to myself. So that's another way I kind of hold myself accountable and practice doing it is by talking to myself. And so by talking to yourself, do you mean, do you run through a visualization where you pretend you're in the moment and you say the whole thing out loud from start to finish? Or is it more shorthand, like remember to be more present when a resident approaches me like this? Um, it's both, actually. Yeah, some of it is just mental notes. Remember to be more present when a resident approaches me. Some of it is going back and talking through scenarios again. Just having a, a one-sided conversation, but uh, in my mind, I recall the response or I recall the interaction and I go through how I would respond. Uh, I am not some crazy person who's sitting there talking to himself all the time. Uh, this is an active exercise I try and do when, uh, when I'm going through cases throughout the day or when I'm kind of breaking things down. 
It's a form of catharsis for me, too. At the end of a shift, even good shifts can be stressful sometimes, and one of my ways of unwinding is just thinking about it and reliving some of those experiences in a way that kind of improves the interaction in my head. That's awesome. So really spending a lot of time sort of post-morteming, either literally or figuratively post-morteming some of the cases to try to figure out what you would do differently. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really awesome. And, and, and when you start the next shift, do you start that shift with a thought sort of loaded? Like today I'm going to improve this particular aspect. I try to. I mean, that's much more relevant if the last shift something really stuck out to me and I'll try and actively address that in myself or with the team on that next shift. Um, a lot of this tends to be general principles. I mean, there are certain common themes working in emergency medicine or in our ED in particular that come up over and over again. Sometimes it's interaction with a consultant, like I said. Sometimes it's a dissatisfied patient, no matter what you do. Sometimes people are not going to be happy with the outcome. Um, so a lot of it is not a specific thing that today I'm going to work on X, Y, and Z. It's the general principle of my approach that I try to take into every shift going forward from that interaction previously. Hmm. I'm wondering about this out loud here, I wonder if this is a type of learning and self-reflection that requires a certain underlying knowledge mass. It requires a certain head of steam to really work. Because when we think about how we teach our residents about a shift, we often ask them at the beginning of a shift, what are you working on today? What are you trying to get better on? With the idea that somehow knowing that will help them get better at that thing. It's interesting that we don't actually do that most of the time ourselves, right? We do some visualization and thinking ahead about a particular idea. We certainly do that premeditato malorum idea. I still don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but you get the idea. And we'd spend a lot of time in post trying to understand better what to change for the next time. But I wonder if that's a type of technique that really requires a baseline level of learning to get it done. I, I think so, absolutely. The Part of the problem though, Dan, is we spend very little time compared to our trainees in improvement of ourselves and feedback to us. Feedback is really important at every level. So mentorship matters because feedback from a trainee is one thing. Feedback from someone who is, let's say, a senior to me, a division director, someone who is supervising me as I work not just a clinical shift but academically is really important. And you're right, you need a certain baseline level of knowledge. When you're at the steep end of the curve, um, you know, taking a deep breath is important and thinking about your patient interactions is important, but you also need to learn how to manage CHF. You need the right. nuts and bolts. Absolutely. It's when you've got those nuts and bolts that it's, it's a little more nuanced. It's your approach needs feedback. Your interactions need feedback. Not necessarily you're not managing CHF appropriately. So do you think, to go back to our previous idea here, do you think that this is a difference between the point in time when you're learning to master your instrument and the point in time where you're starting to improvise? Is this a version of looking back at improvisations and thinking about how they went? Um, I, I think it's the former in that it's the transition between learning to master your instrument and, an instrument and learning to improvise. I think if you look at the nature of how we train, at the beginning, it's, again, I'm using CHF as the example, but learning to deal with CHF. In our more senior level residents, the feedback is more, it's more about the nuance of emergency medicine. It's not the, hopefully not about the knowledge content. And that's kind of the difference. That's the transition to improvising, right? It's, I know how to manage three different cases at once, and I know how to deal with chest pain, altered mental status, and orthopedic injuries, but it's my approach and it's my mental framework that I go into this with that I'm going to give more feedback to. When you're thinking about your own version of that training about improvisation, is there anything different you're doing for that? Or is that rolled up in the same sort of idea? It's rolled up in the same idea, but this is a little bit of a problem with the way we train people. I don't want to say problem necessarily, but we kind of pick arbitrary levels for people. You are a PGY-1, you are a PGY-2. And PGY, PGY is post-grad year. Pardon me, that's right. And then you are a PGY-4 right before you graduate from our program. And we arbitrarily assign a graduated responsibility to these people based on their training level. And that's not necessarily based on their comfort or their knowledge level. 
quite frankly, a lot of our trainees are advanced by the time they're a second year resident. They have the knowledge base already and they're ready to learn to improvise. They're ready to learn to kind of fine tune uh, you know, their, their practice. Sometimes though, for some learners, it takes a little longer. So you may be a fourth year resident by by the number of years you've been there, but perhaps you're not ready for that responsibility yet. And we just kind of blanket do the same for everyone. We give everyone the same level of responsibility with certain metrics being met along the way. Um, I've taken the approach of trying to be a little more personalized in my interaction with residents and trainees in that um, if I feel someone is ready to step up, I, I try and challenge them I try and tell them to try things in a different fashion than they're accustomed to so that they learn kind of the improvisation part of it a little more. Mm. I also think it's not a flat edge, right? You're not ready to improvise in everything or ready to improvise in nothing. Absolutely. There are definitely points where maybe you're a wonderful player of this particular type of a riff and so now you're more comfortable using it you know, when you're sitting in with folks and maybe you're still trying to figure out how to turn this hook around on something. Absolutely. Mindful of our time, I want to shift gears just a little bit here. Sure. Can we take a second and think about the idea of how this applies to people that maybe aren't emergency doctors? Absolutely. Or perhaps aren't jazz musicians, since I think <laughs> we've, we've proven this for jazz musicians. Yeah. Maybe. But as you think about somebody that's listening to this that maybe isn't an emergency doctor, and that could be that they're a paramedic or a frontline provider or anything else, how do you think that they could use these concepts in their own life to master whatever skill they're working on and then to really apply that knowledge under pressure? Well, I think this is no secret, but having a mental framework, an algorithm, is really important to your approach to whatever it is that you do. Um, we use that to be systematic and not miss things and think about the appropriate things, but it applies to virtually any profession and any skill. Um, repetition is largely part of it too. You have to do a lot of this in order to get good at this. You have to use that kind of systematic approach, that algorithm at the very beginning quite a few times before you're able to kind of riff like a jazz musician and go off on your own. Um, I think that's a really important thing to realize. No one is a master picking something up once. You have to practice, and it's purposeful practice that really matters. It's having an approach, doing things in appropriate fashion, doing that a certain number of times, and then kind of learning that autonomy on your own. I think the second part of it is a little bit of a personal attitude thing, too. And in some ways in emergency medicine, we kind of self-select out people who are a little more easygoing and are a little more able to improvise later once they have that framework. Working in the ED isn't for everyone. That's not to say we're better or special in any way, but we work in a system which is chaotic. I love the idea of entropy. Chaos is the standard of the universe. Entropy is the norm. Every time I walk into a shift, I expect that entropy, and really all I'm doing at the end of the day is bringing, bringing transient order to the chaos, and I've learned to accept that in my practice. I'm not going to fix most things. I'm going to try and make things right for a while during my eight-hour shift before chaos takes over again. Um, that's the kind of emergency medicine, that's the advice I would give to ER providers is under people coming into emergency medicine is understand to embrace that chaos a little bit. and I think. In life, we use these algorithms to bring order to the chaos. Even if it's transient, you, that's what it does. It brings order to the chaos until, again, I'm so comfortable doing this after I've done this, if you believe Malcolm Gladwell, you're 10,000 times. Once you've done it that often, then you've really mastered this, and then you're kind of riffing and going off on your own. Absolutely. And, and that idea of not just using an algorithm to initially secure your approach, but also understanding that you're playing in reality. You're playing with a world that is full of chaos and full of entropy. And so maybe it's not trying to bring order and impose it on top of chaos. Maybe it's perhaps more like jazz to play with the chaos and to bring it out together so that you can find that, that sort of joyful edge in whatever you're doing and, and really move yourself forward along that. Absolutely, Dan. I remember uh, 
guy I knew in college got a tattoo that said embrace the chaos and uh, I thought it was really hilarious at first but now it's become our career essentially and now I do that on a daily basis when I walk into work whatever there is waiting for me as organized or as disorganized as busy or as slow as the shift may be I've learned to embrace it and um, in, in whatever career or profession you choose you, you can't control every aspect of life Allah, this helicopter going by right now. Perfect example. Please keep going. So it's important to be systematic. It's important to be organized in your approach to things. That's how we train. That's how we learn. And then you just have to learn that over time, you know, we you can plan for whatever you'd like, but it doesn't always work out that way. And then just think about what you do in that setting too. Amazing. So, so your advice then to somebody listening would be to start thinking about an algorithm First off, I guess to take a step back and remember that there's two phases of all this, master your instrument and then learn to improvise. And to start that process, start generating an algorithm that you think applies to what you're doing and then put it in practice and put it in practice over and over again. Have the discipline, the internal drive to apply that algorithm repeatedly to the point where it feels comfortable and you start being able to see the edges where it works and where it doesn't and then start to make it your own. And then as you're going from that algorithm into your next steps to start learning to improvise and start learning to bring your own sense of joy to it but at the same time have the internal discipline to go back and check again. Check again to make sure that you're not needing to make a change in there. Being the brilliant man you are, you summarized that in a much better fashion than I spoke about <laughs> in the last few minutes we've been talking, Dan. Uh, but I disagree. Yes, absolutely. Well, Dana, as we come to the end of this episode, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. And one is, is there anybody in particular that you want to give a shout out to as having been particularly instrumental in your training? And before I even give you that question, I'm going to say thank you to you for having been such a huge monumental influence in my training and for helping me have a vision of what it is to become under chaos. Um, the second question is, are there any closing thoughts you want to throw people's way, any, any good words of wisdom? Uh, and then the third would be, is there anybody else you'd love to see on this podcast in a future episode? So to answer your first question, Dan, and sorry, uh, thank you for having me on this podcast. Absolute I appreciate pleasure. the chance to talk to you like this about this. Um, the f person I'd like to thank is um, Dr. Shahriar Zatabchi. And all of my attendings at Kings County Hospital, but specifically Shahriar, who was my mentor through residency as well. Uh, model physician, great researcher, great educator. Really what a guy, exemplary, triple threat in emergency medicine. And uh, really one of the most calm and collected people I've ever met in the ED. He's the model that I based myself on. I, I've really parroted his practice style. Uh, the answer to your second question, advice to people, no matter where you work or what you do, Check your own pulse whenever anything gets chaotic. And remember that sometimes the chaos is all around you and all you can do is bring order to the chaos for a little bit. So think of that. And then lastly, future guests for your podcast. Well, as I mentioned previously, I think the ER is like jazz music. And I'd say get a jazz musician on here, or a musician of some sort who can talk about improvisation and music. Oh, that sounds awesome. I would absolutely love that. Awesome. Well, Dana, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com.